Welcome to episode 129 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Matt Johnson. Matt is press coordinator and an investigator for Direct Action Everywhere, otherwise known as DXE. As part of his activism, he has conducted animal farm investigations, been threatened with prison for rescuing farm animals from abuse, and pranked Newsmax and Fox News by posing as the CEO of Smithfield Foods, exposing to millions of their viewers the damage the industry does to non-human animals, human animals, and to the planet. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 128 others. Don't forget to work through that back catalogue if you've just found us. Every person who reviews and rates or shares our podcast with a friend helps us nudge more people towards more compassionate, rational thinking. You can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates, or just search for the word sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Matt. How are you? Uh, good morning, Jamie. I am uh, great and uh, happy to be here. Great. Well, thank you so much for making the time to join this series of sentientist conversations. We've been sort of connected on Twitter for a while, but it's great to have the chance to have a proper conversation. And it was partly triggered by the um, amazing Harper's Magazine article based on you and your story done by Elizabeth Barbett that came out recently, too. So that sort of prompted me to get in touch. And it's great to have the chance to talk to the man himself. Yeah, yeah, I know it's it's uh, I'm super happy with the way that turned out, and I think it's uh, you know uh, Elizabeth and, and Harper's they see kind of this budding movement and uh, people people like you people like me, and it's kind of something that they're taking a closer look at, which is obviously great. Kind of the the name of the game in terms of getting the message out there. I think they uh, or she, she uh, told a really powerful kind of gave a powerful perspective to that. So uh, yeah, absolutely. And, the, and threading the sort of the personal story through what ultimately is a sort of institutional societal change challenge. I think, yeah, she did a beautiful job. So so as as you roughly know, this is a series of conversations about what I think of as the two deepest philosophical questions and the most important ones, and they often get skated over. Um, what's real and what and who matters? And I've got an obvious bias because I'm trying to popularise and develop this really pluralistic, simple worldview that can be described in the sentence, evidence, reason, and compassion for all sentient beings. So it suggests that when we're thinking about what's real and how to understand reality, we should use evidence and reason to try and work that out with some humility appropriately. Um, and when it comes to thinking about ethics, the clue is in the, is in the name that we should have moral consideration or compassion for every sentient being. So every being that has the capacity to suffer, to flourish, to have experiences. But I'm talking in these conversations to people who both agree and disagree with uh, aspects of that philosophy so it would be fascinating to understand your personal story and where it's got you to so far yeah that, that sounds great uh this is right right down my alley i, I, I love this kind of stuff and you know, wish i could <laughs> this is like you know friday night conversations over a beer with with friends like you know 100 times over the past you know five ten years so this is perfect excellent now i'm looking forward to it. and i'm i have a coffee rather than a beer but you know oh me, me as well yeah it'll do it'll do We'll have to do a version where we've got beers as well and see if we come to different conclusions. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like a rowdy your podcast. Maybe not quite as like intelligent and informative, <laughs> but maybe more entertaining. So it's a trade-off. Yeah, we'll have to do an after-dark version or something. So. Yeah. But before we get into those big philosophical questions, Matt, how would you best introduce yourself and your work for people who don't know you? Yeah, so I'm Matt Johnson. I am an investigator with Direct Action Everywhere and uh, also the organization's uh, press coordinator. Uh, so um, uh, most of my day-to-day -day work, I'm kind of sending out press releases, talking to journalists, spending a lot of time, maybe too much time on on Twitter, and then uh, kind of as opportunities have popped up over the years, I kind of jump on uh, different opportunities to uh, work with whistleblowers, go into factory farms, document cruelty, uh, all that good stuff. That's great. Thank you. Well, let's start with the first of these big philosophical questions. What's real? So for many of my guests, that's a story about really the choice between a supernatural or a naturalistic worldview. So whether they grew up originally in a religious or a mystical or a spiritual context, maybe family, friends, society, or one that was maybe more scientifically minded, atheist, agnostic, naturalistic, um, and how that side of their thinking has changed over their life to the present day, if indeed it has changed. So 
yeah, you can wind the clock back as far as you like. But it'd be fascinating to know yeah. your story on that front. Yeah, I think that's a perfect question to explore and definitely relevant to to my own experience. I was, um, I mean, kind of as it relates to to animal rights, you know, the, the you know issue that's obviously very motivating for for the two of us in our lives. I was, uh, you know, we'll wind it back to when I was four years old and first had this experience uh, that that I think is actually a pretty common, you know, initial experience that a lot of a lot of young kids have when you first kind of have that loss of innocence where you where you realize, okay, what's what's in front of me on my plate is not this kind of benign sustenance food. Um, and it actually, I'll kind of get into a quick story on that. I was eating at my grandparents' house. And uh, I, I mean, I vividly remember at the age of four, I have this roll and this, um, uh, you know, venison deer flesh right there in front of me, one bite out of it. And my uncles are kind of standing behind me and are having this conversation. And that was when I first like pieced it together and was like horrified there because they're, they're deer hunters and talking about it and realized what this was. And I, um, that, that, that same day, you know, later that night, I'm talking to my mom and I went to her and I, I never heard the word vegan or vegetarian. I didn't even say like, I don't want to eat meat. It was very like about the individuals. And I told my mom, I don't want to eat animals. And, um, it's been, uh, a tricky, uh, well, a complicated path between, between here and there. And, and, you know, on the subject, uh, kind of the question you raised here, growing up in a religious household, it was, you know, God gave us animals for food, dominion over animals, this sort of thing. So I, on one hand, it's just like, this is what God apparently says we're supposed to do. And on the other hand, here's me four years old living in, in Iowa, like, hunters, factory farms everywhere, uh, but just being pulled by like, this just absolutely does not seem right. And so what that manifests as in, in my life growing up was that I was this silent vegetarian conflicted in this way. I would go through um, school and I always brought a, a lunch from home as I wouldn't eat, you know, what they were serving there. And so, and I would bring my lunchbox in and I would set it on the table and I would just open it up and I would not even like pull my like peanut butter sandwich out. I would reach inside of my lunchbox and, and break off a little piece. And then just very quickly from inside the lunchbox to my mouth. So people around me weren't really paying attention to what I was eating. And this is because like, I, you know, I'm like, a, I mean, I'm ashamed kind of like, I'm, am I like weak? Am I like weird? Am I effeminate? Like, I don't know what this is, but it's like, it's what I'm going to, I'm not, I just was not going to eat animals. And so I mean, there's people that were like pretty good acquaintances of mine, but good friends of mine for all through 13 years of grade school that like never do. I was even a vegetarian. Wow. Um, yeah. And then, um, and that's, that's really early to, I think it's reasonably common to have those sorts of thoughts quite early on, but that's really early to actually do it and put your foot down yeah. and make yeah. a change. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because you, you see it if you're, well, at least in the kind of animal rights social media sphere, you see different videos of, of kids that will have, I mean, kids will be crying that are just like, you know, secondhand trauma, I would say. And that's yeah. certainly what I think I experienced as a kid. And I've thought about this, like, you know, what like what took hold in me that, that where, where other kids have an experience like that, but then they're kind of, you know, pulled into the social norms that, that are all around them. And um, I had another experience. Uh, so, so I had this conversation with my mom and my family's kind of, you know, like thinking this is just a phase and they're telling me I'm, I'm, you know, this is not healthy. I actually had one aunt I think with good intentions, but one of my aunts told me I'm going to die if I don't eat animals. <laughs> and so even at the age of four, I'm kind of like, you didn't really say that with the tone of voice that if I was really going to die, like, we'll just wait and see if I start to feel like I'm kind of dying, then I might have to reassess. Uh, but as to like, like, what was it that made it stick for me? Um, I was uh, actually at my grandparents, my same grandparents house a few months after the first incident I was telling you about. And this is a Christmas time, and, and, and these uncles of mine who are deer hunters, um, they uh, called me, hey, Matthew, you know, they called my name, and they have this, this shed out in the back there, and they said, hey, come here, and this is, you know, right before Christmas time, I walk in, and they have this 
deer that they killed strung up upside down and they had painted the deer's nose red. And so in that moment, you know, four, maybe five-year-old myself at that time, um, I didn't think this was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but what I did think was that like these people around me are like monstrous, which is not a great thing to think about your family, but in a kind of, you know, I don't know, psychology is an interesting and complex and messy thing. And I think that uh, it's kind of like it polarized it for me in a way that like, I, in terms of like what made it stick, like, why did I not? So I think if, if with a lot of kids that have similar experiences at a young age, you know, it's kind of like, yeah, I know you feel that way. It's like, it's hard, but it's kind of the way the world is. And, you know, these are, you know, it's just like a soft landing that kind of like sucks them in. And with me, it was, and it was just so jarring and shocking. Like that experience just was so stuck with me. And then I remember like, I go to kindergarten and you see like the posters of like, be kind to others and do unto others. You have to do unto you. And it was just like bizarro world. And um, so I don't know, some, some really weird and messed up and kind of traumatic experiences that I think have you know, yeah, yeah. had a good outcome in the way I've lived, you know, lived my life. So it kind of worked out. Yeah. You got there early. Yeah. And you've, you've demonstrated what often happens in these conversations that I start out trying to talk about epistemology and, you know, the evidence and reason stuff. And we just dive straight into ethics and it's often really hard to extricate those things. But you yeah. mentioned that one of the points of conflict or challenge was the religious worldviews that your family grew up with too what what was the nature of those religious worldviews and you know, did you share them and do you still have them today and what sort of journey yeah. have you gone through there um yeah so so uh it was about about as kind of as, as straightforward as it, it, it didn't go super deep it was like this is what the bible says god gave us animals for food you're going to be unhealthy um and i mean all the, the myths of you know different com complete proteins and if you don't eat yeah, you know, all sorts of stuff. Well-intentioned. My parents cared about me. They still care about me. I care about them. They didn't have the, you know, the internet wasn't a thing in, you know, 1990. So yeah. it is what it is. Um, but uh, yeah, in, into adulthood, I am not a religious person. And uh, yeah, I pretty much came around to, uh, you know, that, that four-year-old version of myself pretty much, pretty much had it right. And um, so, yes, so in terms of being, go so, ahead. Yeah. So what's the, what's the, um the challenge around the animal ethics thing because because you there's a few ways you could go with that one is you could just say well this is one topic on which i disagree with the religious worldview the other one is it could actually start you challenging or thinking more deeply about whether this religious worldview makes sense as a whole was it one or both of those or, or were they uh, independent strains of thought it was um yeah i mean coming to not not be religious was was an independent yeah thing of uh yeah i guess kind of like the the the, the new atheist you know the, the the sam harris richard dawkins uh like that whole kind of thing um after 9-11 uh so that was kind of the losing my religion and then sort of as a consequence of that that just became clear like yes this the kind of like the animal rights perspective made made all the more sense and uh you know being an adult and just you know, meeting people like yourself, like looking, you know, social media for all the good and the bad that comes with that. You know, the good thing is you find like-minded people like, hey, I'm not the only one who thinks this. And you kind of can find your voice and make up for lost time where I was, you know, all through childhood, not speaking my mind on it. And uh, I think I'm I think I'm making up for lost time now. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. So as you moved away from that religious worldview and, you know, the, I think the new atheist influenced many people. Um, I certainly read most, most of their books. Um and the criticisms of them too. But it strikes me from talking to my guests that there were a bunch of different things that drove people's movement away. One was the sort of facts and evidence and reason thing of just like, this just doesn't seem like it's true to me anymore. There isn't good enough evidence. There's lots of incoherences within the Bible and the Quran and the different religions disagree with each other. And it looks much more like something that was made by men than you know, inspired by a deity. So there's the sort of facts and evidence stuff. Then there's a sort of, uh, an ethical pushback where people, where you look at certain religions and the interpretations of them and go, well, that doesn't seem consistent with my compassionate ethics and whether it's intrahuman stuff, whether it's racism, sexism, you know, different forms of worldview, bigotry, um, blasphemy, free speech constraints or animal ethics, right? There's an ethical thing where you go, hold on, that ethical system seems to have some aspects that don't make sense. 
Um, was it a bit of both, one or the other, or something else that led you away from a religious worldview? Yeah, that is an interesting way uh, question. I it, it had I think it, it but, you know by the time I was into adulthood, it was the the, the facts and rationality side of things because I think that when I was a child, I mean the the ethics thing smacked me in the face. You know, yeah. when I was four or five years old, like that was just like that, and so I just I guess I mean yeah that I mean that 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 crisis played out in my head when I was four or five years old to be like okay yes. Yeah. I don't know how this universe came to be, but apparently this universe was created by somebody who's got way more power than me. And I guess I still want to go to heaven. And I guess I kind of got to go with the program here. But yeah, I mean, it was it was always, you know, very, very strange and contradictory for forever on, on the, the ethics side of things. Um, but uh, I kind of just sort of like a, kind of halfway accepted yeah. like i guess this could just be the person who's got all the power that this great deity in the sky decided that this is what it is and we're powerless to say any different basically yeah yeah so and and um was it a difficult thing to give up for you or was it just something that faded away and you dropped it because because again for some of my guests like me it was been pretty boring and easy because the religious context i grew up on was also christian but it was like a sort of anglican English version, which is very polite and very understated and just sort of sits in the background and doesn't really intrude on your life that much. Um, so that was reasonably easy to move away from. But then I've spoken to others for whom it was, you know, major social risk. There were family rifts. There was even physical risk in some instances of people giving up religious worldviews around the world. Was where's, Where was yours on the spectrum? I... Um... By the time I, I, I kind of did shed, shed my religious belief, it was it was pretty easy earlier on when your life when you're younger and and you don't have internet access you're living with your family then then that social influence is, is pretty huge then I'm into my 20s living on my own got connections with people via the internet and I mean one thing my uh so my, my both of my parents were were different strands of Christianity my dad was and is Jehovah's Witness oh wow yeah and uh one just uh kind of trivial thing maybe that is going to sound trivial but really mattered to me it was like I was hating the prospect of being the the door-to-door the -door evangelizing like you know and it was it, again one of the and I, I stalled and stalled and stalled and I unfortunately I stalled long enough that I just gave up you know that I gave up the belief before I ever actually did that <laughs> um because this is you know it's sort of same thing is just like eating animals is like God, I guess if if the Almighty says that I'm supposed to go do this knocking on doors thing. I guess at some point I'm gonna have to do it. So it was kind of, you know, very nice at uh, you know, to not to not to not have have to do that thing <laughs> yeah. I was dreading. Um, so and that's that, and that's community yeah. that I mean it varies a lot as most communities do, but where this the social and family challenges can be really serious about leaving. You know, there can be shunning is quite common as I understand it in Jehovah's Witness communities and so on. But it doesn't sound like that was the sort of thing that had an impact on you guys. Yeah, I, I, my sense, I mean, I think that the shunning is a thing that, I mean, it, it, I think it kind of is implemented to whatever extent they have like the power and it makes sense for their interest to do so. Yeah. And um, I've never, yeah, I mean, where, where I'm at, it was never that strong because they, they don't have the, yeah, I mean, they, they yeah. can't, they can't afford to do it if they're going to try to grab, you know, seize power. Yeah, makes sense. And it probably helped, I guess, that your mother was from a different, um, you, you were mentioning she was from a different flavor of Christianity. Yeah, so those, so those two were, were feuding back and forth. So that that cast doubt on like the whole prospect of everything. Oh, yeah, that she yeah, was yeah. more like Lutheran You were like, you can't and, both be right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it was it was interesting. It made for some interesting Christmases too, because Jehovah's Witnesses don't do Christmas. We'd run off with mom and go do the Christmas things like, Oh, I kind of want to get these presents. But dad says, this is like some pagan devil worship <laughs> nonsense. Yeah. And so I don't know, but uh, you know, I mean, the Nintendo's pretty cool. I ain't giving that back. <laughs> Makes so much sense. Makes so yeah, much sense. Yeah. So, so let's move on from the religion thing. Cause that's been really interesting. But before I let you go off the epistemology story, many people 
I like you and me, move away from a religious worldview. And most of my guests have done that. Not all, but most of them have. Um, and some of them end up being sort of boring, naturalistic atheists like me, or at least extreme agnostics. Um, and then they apply that naturalism pretty generally as well, right? This is this evidence and reason thing, I guess I'm talking about. Um, but some people do follow a different path where they'll move away from an institutional religion, but they'll still want to find some way of being maybe spiritual, but not religious. So there's a sense of the supernatural or something magical or mystical or some sense of there being something beyond the natural world that still gives them meaning. Is that something that, you know, are there other aspects of your belief system that you think are still drawn to the supernatural or where you might believe things that aren't strictly naturalistic or are you boring um, like me? I think I'm pretty boring on that one. I think it's, um, I mean, I'm, I'm heavily uh, influenced by, uh, well, actually, another big to back to the the new atheists uh, to the, the the kind of free will conversation and like I mean this was like a big Sam Harris thing where um, you know it seems pretty true to me that the, the free will is an illusion and it seems pretty so, so I mean and and you know you just sort of like follow that to its logical conclusion and it's I like I don't fundamentally feel like I have any anger towards anybody like literally factory farm CEOs Hitler serial killers anybody um maybe that's a little different direction than where you're going but it, it's just uh like that's sort of like what I'm grounded in and I um it's nice to not to not walk around and, and just feel I mean you can be like annoyed with people or frustrated with them but it's like well you know if I was in their shoes with their genes and their environment. I don't, I don't, I don't know what they're going through, but that's what put them there. And that's what I would have done if I was in those same sort of shoes. And um, yeah, I mean, as far as, uh, you know, spirituality and like that sort of stuff. Um, yeah. I don't know. I'll, I'll take the evidence. Yeah, no, I'm with you. I'm with you. And it's, and it's fascinating because that is one of the space um, where I guess the supernatural tends to leak back in, if you like, and it tends to be around things that are really interesting or really difficult to understand. So, you know, the origin of the universe is an obvious one. We don't know what happened there. So let's put a deity there. Um, uh, you know, consciousness can be another one. People are like, I just really cannot understand how this could come from just the physics of my brain. So maybe there's something else or something mystical there. And free will is another one, right? We all have this really powerful sense that we have free will. So if it's not just the operation of physics, there must be something else. But but I'm with you. I, you know, some people and sentientists would disagree on this as well, right? So that's one of the things about sentientism is it's so broad, evidence, reason, and compassion for sentient beings that people have a massive variety of different opinions. But this is my view. I'm with you. I'm like naturalistic down the line to the extent that I think we have will, we make choices, but they're not free in an, any really physical sense, right? Everything ultimately is genes and environment and the operation of physics um and some people really hate the idea of that because they think our justice system collapses and you can't hold people accountable and nothing matters and, and, and i well, don't it's complicated at least well yeah. it, it, it does but in a way I, I don't i think it actually might move us towards a more progressive way of thinking about justice which you hinted at as well which is this one of in a way moral luck right we're all the people we are today purely because of luck that we don't really deserve any credit for and we don't ultimately deserve any sort of blame cause cosmic blame for either um so that can take us to a much more progressive place that just thinks about trying to make the world a better place but that doesn't mean we don't we can't still hold you know people who do bad things accountable for their right. actions right you can still you can drop retribution as a motivation yeah you can still have rehabilitation and deterrence and an imperative to protect others you know, and all those other things that can I mean you could still have quite a strong system mm -hmm. of justice that controls, constrains, even harms other people if you've got a right justification. But yeah, yeah, you just like feel quite regretful about it. I feel as regretful about putting a serial killer in prison as I do, you know, any other similar degree of suffering to someone who is, you know, quote unquote innocent because ultimately we're all innocent in the in the same cosmic well, sense like it's interesting because i think you, you you probably do better at that than me because for you know just emotionally i guess my compassion for the potential victims of the serial killer in the future is such a strong offset to me that i would i you know i, I would still but i would have to work to feel empathy for the serial killer i would yeah. technically recognize that i don't want to needlessly cause them harm however right. bad they are but i still have that strong emotional 
you know, oh, yeah. there's still a retributive bit going on in my mind that I try and yeah. manage to. Oh yeah. Okay. Completely, completely. I mean, when I, yeah, I mean, there, there were like, for example, with the, this investigative work that we did in Iowa, you know, right after this happened, there's, you know, these thousands of pigs, you know, and not that this conversation won't go to the details, but yeah. as, as cruel of a practice, you can imagine these pigs are all, you know, and we, we show up there after we caught this on hidden camera, these pigs are all, maybe a few of them aren't even dead. So, I mean, just a massacre just happened. These bodies are strewn about thousands and here and shows it's, up. It's as ven- we show ventilation shut down. Ventilation shut down, yep. And then the um, the C, why am I forgetting his name? COO, chief operating officer of the company who just makes like, uh, like $500,000 a year. The guy who's calling the shots shows up there and I'm like face to face with this guy. And uh, it was... Yeah, I was I was I was straining my straining straining my 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 free will determinism in, in that in that moment there, and uh, it was you know yeah you, you have those kind of moments for sure. Uh, but it, but it it really is, is you know to the extent that I that I am truly grounded in that. I mean, like interpersonally, it really it it helps so much to to, to not to not to have that. Um, it can be a little bit of a, a hindrance. You don't want, you kind of want to not take that to heart when it comes to like your own stuff because it can be helpful to like yeah. take pride in your work and do whatever and so you don't have to tell yourself well this is just some nonsense man you're, you're just running you're just running the yeah. script <laughs> yeah and guilt and shame can be sort of useful yeah mechanisms too tricky. right for a person who genuinely doesn't have them so yeah it's a tricky balance oh, that's that's fascinating it's a bit of a tangent in a way but i think it is a fascinating one and many of the other sentientists will disagree with both of us um but if we come on to this second question about what matters and then um who matters, which we've already started to talk about. One of the challenges for somebody with a naturalistic worldview or a non-religious worldview is, okay, well, where do your ethics come from at all? So that might be an interesting place to start from is, you know, what do you think good and bad, right and wrong even mean? And how has that changed through your life, even from, you know, when you were four to where you are now? Yeah, it's uh, obviously a huge, huge conversation to to have. And um, I... I, I feel like it's it's like too simplistic to like, but it, it's kind of, is this utilitarianism? I know that can go like a thousand different kinds of ways. And and frankly, in, in a lot of like political conversations, you see like these like high, like, like these sort of things, like high-minded philosophical ideals. I feel like the kind of, they're often used as a way to like launder like right-wing ideas that are detached yeah. from 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 the realities of of like current modern day policies. So I feel like you got to be kind of you know careful in, in sort of like explaining where you're coming from. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, just kind of like that ultimate orientation. And not that I am like I, I don't go like too far deep into it beyond saying like okay. 99.999 few more nines percent of sentient life on human on earth is not us and the representation of them the suffering the harm of them i mean any which way you do the math it is just like what like <laughs> yeah. sorry humans like i know it's you know easy for the straight white guy living in america that's kind of got a you know cushy apartment here to say but i think i kind of have to put my energy uh towards towards the 99.99999 yeah, I understand that. And it's that's one of the other things that sentientism is sort of cops out from, if you like, because it's just trying to set this really basic platform. So it doesn't suggest we should be utilitarian or have a sort of rights of their ontological view or a feminist care ethic view or a relational view or a virtue ethics view. It says, you know, any of those you could make work or you could combine them in some sort of pluralistic sense. The most important thing is that every sentient being gets counted in your ethical system. Um, so it leaves it deliberately quite open. It just says that at least every sentient being should count and that we should then set a meaningful baseline about what compassion or moral consideration means and that at least we wouldn't needlessly harm or kill one of those beings, you know, because if you would do that, that doesn't seem to tie up with any definition of moral consideration or compassion for me. But I, and, and I find utilitarianism interesting because I'm sort of, again, sentientists will disagree on this because they come from all of those different ethical systems I talked about, I'm quite comfortable with the consequentialist way of thinking, which is ultimately saying that consequences matter because in a way the suffering or the flourishing of a sentient being is a consequence. And ultimately that is the be all and end all of what I care about. But I think many people are drawn to the utilitarian approach, which is a version of that. 
but then get nervous around some aspects of it that you hinted at. So, you know, when you start to do explicit calculations where actually things are a bit more fuzzy, or we start adding up the suffering of lots of different beings when no being actually experiences that total suffering, or where you start offsetting the suffering of one with the pleasure of another. And it's like, well, I know my suffering can't be offset by anything, right? It's still my suffering. So there are, yeah. there are a bunch of things there that make you know, yeah. me maybe back towards a more pluralistic approach that still goes back to thinking about each individual and, you know, what, what ethics means for them. But Yeah. And, I mean, on, on that point, I, you, um, and I, sounds like you, you've thought about this and discussed this a lot more, more deeply than I have. Uh, but I think that to, you know, say, I think consequentialism and utilitarianism, I mean, in, 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 in the context of the world we're living in right now with, with animal suffering, it's like they both, like, either which way you go, like, you're like, like, I'm living my life the same sort of way with full conviction, you know, like, and the the consequences, um, yeah. I mean, we animal agriculture, like the the idea idea of like personhood versus property status of animals. Any which way you slice it, like there, there's there's no debate here. Like yeah. so, it's. Uh, I t- I totally agree, and that's one of the reasons I um it sort of circles back around in that in that there are some really interesting you know thought experiments thought experiments and um, trolley problems and edge cases where you know a virtue ethicist and a feminist care ethics person and a utilitarian might disagree but there are certain really obvious central core cases that are deeply urgent in today's world where whatever your ethical system is as long as you have moral consideration for every sentient being and you don't just exclude them you come to the same answer right Um, you know something like animal agriculture is front and center, you know, I, I challenge anyone with a sentiocentric view, whatever their ethical system is to say, you know, animal agriculture is, uh, is ethically warranted. I just don't think you can get there. So I, I think that's right. one of the things that reassures me about taking a pluralistic approach. It doesn't mean you're saying anything goes. You can actually say that almost whatever your system is, there are certain really obvious things that we yep. can all still team up on and work on. So, so it sounds like the, the sort of raw material of that ethic is, you know, it's about, you know, ultimately the experiences of others, they're suffering, they're flourishing and caring about that. And then you can think about lots of different ways of, of doing that. Um, and the second part of the question is this one about who matters and moral scope. And again, in a way, you've already told that story because you jumped to caring about non-human animals at the age of four. And you carry that through your work today, of course, with a phenomenal commitment. How do you think about setting the boundary of that moral scope do you use terms like sentience or do you think about all animals and in that context how do you think about things that go even beyond sentience and animals how do you think about environmental or um you know yeah. other concerns beyond that in terms of moral consideration yeah so i think um uh i mean i to, to me it's it's uh you know, you can look at uh, the, the the edge cases or, you know, the, okay, so certain like oysters or worms or whatever, something like that. Um, and to, to me, me my, my thinking on it is, uh, I mean, I'm a little kind of repetitive here, I guess, but uh, just it's, it's whichever the, the calculation is like, okay, maybe you, you know, you could say, okay, maybe like insects don't experience, you know, it's, it's conceivable that they're, somehow it's like a form of sentience that's like less something less uh vivid that their experiences that you could maybe make an argument like their life is less you know i don't know vivid or somehow i don't know fraught fraught stuff but it's uh there's just so much i mean the cows the pigs the chickens if we you know uh stop harming them and then i think you know you know another very interesting conversation is you know i think that 99 you know over 99% of the conversation around animal rights focuses on less than 1% of like the ultimate good it can do and what i mean that what i mean by that is just stopping harm instead of the proactive proactively helping and i think there're very good strategic reasons to do that but i think there're probably very good strategic reasons there should be a little more than less than 1% of the conversation because that's actually a hopeful message when you say like hey let's um, you know, like, let's figure out how we can help animals. And it, it sounds like some sci-fi wild stuff to say, like, genetically modifying 
animals away from predation, but uh, like whatever, like let's throw, can we, can we throw like one-tenth of 1% 1 of our national budget at like this unfathomably huge good? Like, I think that'd be great. I think, you know, I've thought about like, you know, start up a nonprofit and you can, uh, you know, almost start like a, a, a okay, it's, it's like an animal sanctuary, but it's like kind of like a self-contained terrarium almost where it's like, it's, there's not, it's not dirt. It's like some sort of like terraform uh, or something. And then the, all the sentient life within there is like, you're maximizing the happiness of them. And then you could have like dogs in there and you could have like dogs that are like playing on like iPads. And it's like, oh, they'd like to chase the tree. And then they hit the button and they have, and you like market it. This is like the world's happiest dogs. And then that, that is like a very inspiring message of people to be like, well, let's, make the lives of all these individuals, you know, I mean, to just say like, stop harming them, go vegan. Like that's just such a, you know, obvious, as we know, hard as hell to like get through to people, get people to listen, get people to care. But if you can like get a positive side of it, um, I guess I know, I know your focus and your question is that uh, I'm, I'm, my brain always kind of goes to like messaging narrative, like efficacy, you know, which, which you're kind of on a conceptual level right now, but um yeah. Anyway, yeah. Kind of well, that, that, no, answer. that was a that was a fascinating answer, and you you touched on obviously two you know hot button issues in the vegan Twitter sphere at the moment as well. And I'd largely agree, right? I think again, sentientism doesn't tell us which species are sentient. It just says that wherever sentience is and whatever it is, it it matters. So you can fight over bivalves or sea sponges or you know which types of invertebrates or insects may or may not be sentient, or whether they're degrees of sentience, or whether we're there's some dangers in using that approach. Those are really important discussions, I think. But again, there's so much common ground that we can really agree, obviously, on around the you know many billions and trillions of non-human animals that obviously are sentient. That basically, no one really disagrees are sentient. So let's not forget that common ground as we get and get distracted by the edge cases. But you mentioned that your point about you know not harming versus actively helping is a really interesting one because that's another space where I find that quite a lot of people in the vegan community have almost become trapped by a weird sort of anthropocentrism in a way, because they think that the only bad things that animals experience that are meaningful are the ones done by humans. So if we stop all the human harms, then the problem's solved. And I'm like, yeah. well, that, that, doesn't, that seems odd, right? Because in a human context, we wouldn't think that way. You know, we don't say we need to stop humans harming other humans, but if a hurricane, you know, causes a tsunami that, puts loads of people's lives at risk we're not going to help because it's not a human cause but yeah. many people even in the animal advocacy community have that mindset when it comes to non-human animals and say well hands off and i and i, I can yeah. appreciate where they're coming from because there's such a deep skepticism about humanity given our track record it's understandable our hubris and the horrible things we've done but at the same time we're probably the only chance That's that dope. some of those animals have got to be helped so we should be humble and cautious and really skeptical of our own motivations but let's yeah. not cut them out of our moral scope just because yeah. they're not harmed by humans yeah and then i think that also touches on your uh earlier question about uh you know like which individuals matter and is it like you know the environment and that sort of thing and um you know uh, frank uh, this might sound a little bit arrogant but i think that people i think that that's just a, a natural inclination that people have before they think it through too much and it is and it's also a con you know it's like so much of, you know, the conversation around animal rights is stopping the harm. So people just aren't thinking beyond that, nor do they, you know, also a reasonable argument to say, like, the more you talk about it, you come off as like weird sci-fi people who are not in touch with the reality around us. So yeah, I think there's a lot of other stuff going on and there. Vegans are weird not, enough already, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, um, yeah, I think there's, I mean, the one, let me, uh, you know, um, there's, uh, it comes to mind, um, Live Kindly, which is, which is this uh, really cool outlet that, they, you know, they do like a lot of like vegan recipes and activism, lots and lots of good work. I'm going to insert my criticism here uh, because their uh, mission statement, it has something along the lines of like somewhere in their statement, it says something about nature uh, in its systems is arguably flawless. Watch the Discovery Channel, like yeah. lions and gazelles. Something seems less than flawless there, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but Indeed. yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's, there's the, you know, it's like how. I mean, my, my brain again always just goes to like messaging or like how do we how do we get people to engage with with any of this stuff? Um, 
but that's beyond the scope there. I am going to let you get on to your life's work and messaging and narrative and effectiveness very shortly. But the, the one final question I have for you was, I have this clear focus on sentience as, you know, every, every being that we reasonably think might be sentient, we should include in a moral consideration. Um, and some people criticize that and say, look, you've gone too far because humans need to matter. And beyond that, not so much, right? So that's a classic anthropocentric view. But some people also criticize it and they say, well, look, you're not going far enough. This sort of sentient-centric way of thinking is discriminating against the biosphere, the ecosphere, plants, rocks, rivers, trees, the earth as Gaia. Don't those things warrant moral consideration too? Do you have a sense for how that stuff plays in? Yeah, so I, I personally, you know, I, I I think of it as as the the, the non sentient entities that you mentioned matter to the extent that they affect sentient individuals. Yeah. And to to go real, you know, if you take the the, the example I was talking about of the, the 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 sanctuary terrarium with the world's happiest dogs. If you follow that through to its to its logical conclusion, maybe the entirety of sentient existence in the universe consists of like two dudes like me and you hovering over a petri dish that looks like nothing but a petri dish, but we know in that petri dish is un uncalculatable like euphoria that exists in there. It doesn't look like nothing, but we've transcended our speciesism. We don't care if, if it's a dog wagging his tail that we're excited about. It's just like, it comes down to that. So uh, anyways, messaging wise, that's like a, a horrible thing to put out there probably. Yeah, or whatever, don't worry, but, don't uh, worry. I've got a tiny uh, audience, so no one will <laughs> listen to this. You're, you're yeah, completely yeah. safe. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, it's... And I, I, should, I, I, I I, I, I share that sense, right? I think those things are really powerfully important, but they're important because of their impact on the sentient beings, not because they're, you know, have their own experiences or because they're morally significant in their own right. But I guess there's, there, well, this leaks into our final question, which is that's part of my frustration with the core central gravity of the modern environmental movement is that in a sense, they seem to have gone from an anthropocentric concern to this super generous, look, we care about the entire ecosystem, but they've seemed to have cut out all of the vast quadrillions of sentient beings in the wild and certainly in our farms from their moral consideration. So instead of it being a sort of moral circle, it's turned into some weird sort of double-layered donut with this horrible strip of suffering that's just carved out. And so to my mind, little, and this isn't true of all of the environmental movement, but the central gravity of it seems really to be just another version of anthropocentrism because the only reason they care about the environment is because of its threat to humans. And that's where it stops. So I find that frustrating. And you can see that playing through in, you know, COP26 serving steak for lunch and the sort of taboo against challenging animal agriculture in the environmental movement. You know, it's all about electric vehicles and wind and solar and no one wants to talk about animal agriculture and CH4 and land use and pollution and runoffs and blah, blah, blah. So that's just a rant about my frustration about people claiming they've gone to a super generous scope but they've still cut out most of the sentient beings. So. Yeah, yeah. The little, uh, little, like, I, I gave up plastic straws to save the fish. Uh, yeah. I, I didn't give up fish to save the fish, <laughs> yeah. but I, gave, I, go, I have no more plastic straws for me. Or like I yeah. saw, um, you know, there was uh, AOC um, and um, was it what Mark, Marky, I think is like a senator in like Vermont or Connecticut or something on the East Coast. And they posted on Twitter a while back and they're like, uh, oh, so-and-so right-winger whatever says that we want to to ban cows we had a good laugh about that while we ate our ben and jerry's ice cream this is a tweet that, that not only did aoc you know green new deal put out there like like thumbing her nose proudly eating dairy laughing at what a joke it is that we're going to ban cows or whatever and sunrise like shares that tweet like like supportively too which is you know this youth climate movement that's supposed to be the radicals leading the way here in the u.s so uh anyway i mean plus one to, to, to all your frustrations on that. And um, yeah, it's the, the, the battle with the human psychology because the endless ways that people will do the mental gymnastics to kind yeah. of reinforce kind of what they want to do and what's comfortable around them is, is yeah. a monster. And it's, it's pretty transparent. You can, and you could see the, it's the human needs and preferences driving this situation because, you know, we want farmed animals dead because then we can consume them. And we want wild animals to be alive to the extent that there's enough of them around at a population level to look pretty. And that's sort of, I mean, I don't want to be super cynical, but that's not far from 
the default, you know, human ethic when it comes to non-human animals these days. But and it's and I find it fascinating because you know there's a local community group on WhatsApp around where I live here, and their concern for wild animals is really strong, right? Oh, there's, there was a duckling by some pond and we've called the RFBCA and we're going to go and help. And it, it's almost as though the average non-vegan cares more about, you know, individual wild animals that are close to them than the average vegan does. Whereas, of course, <laughs> those same people are happily consuming sentient beings, you know, at every every meal too. Humans are weird. But let's... Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it. I mean, and I, I find that there, there's some little strains of, of, of hope with something like that. That's, um, you look at like, for example, um, the conversation of like NIMBYs and YIMBYs, like not in my backyard, yes in my backyard. So I mean, I think that like the hope, uh, is, is to make it, like not cool. Like, like, okay, yeah, you, oh, you have this beautiful view in your backyard. Like, okay, stop calling yourself a progressive if you're like, oh yeah, I support all the progressive causes, but you're like gonna fight tooth and nail to you know to have that pond with the cute ducks in your backyard and not have you know housing built up here that, that has thousands of other people that are going to share your beautiful view in your you know neighborhood and whatever um so i think it's there there is a strain that, that gives me some hope that it's like circling back that like a little maybe not you know not as much in terms of like animal rights but just in terms of like this like you know you get to have your, you know you get to have your beautiful view and, and keep your you know, self-affirming progressivism too type of thing. Yeah, yeah. And that that cues up this final question really beautifully, which is uh, in that context, how can we make a better future? And I'd I'd share that sort of hope because uh, in, a, in a weird way, most humans at a conceptual level or a theoretical level agree with this sort of sentientist stance already, right? So they, if you say to most people, well, are your beliefs, do you like your beliefs to be based on evidence and reason? Most people will say yes. And of course, you can then challenge the various things they believe that have no basis in evidence, but you can, you know, at least in theory, they agree with you. And the same is true in a weird sense with this sentient-centric stance, right? You say, should we have compassion for all sentient beings? And people will go, of course, all suffering matters, when of course, we know how far they all are from putting that into practice. So, but that does give me some hope, right? There's some sort of latent underpinning positive epistemology and ethics and in most humans that I think does give me hope for the future. Um, but the, often in these conversations, the blocker seems to be less one of, you know, a technical thing or a philosophical argument or some other dynamic. It's really about social norms and human psychology that seem to be the big inertial blocks getting in the way of us doing what I think you and I agree are probably some really obvious win-wins. And I mean, you've you've been on the front line of activism and trying to change people's opinions for a long while um you know you've done direct rescue um you've done investigations that have tried to improve the transparency so that millions more people can see the reality of what's going on in animal agriculture you've developed your empathy for the ceos of big meat companies by pretending to be them on fox (laughs) news and newsmax which is uh must have been an amazing thing to do um and and of course, DXE, your organization, the organization you're a senior part of, um, is pushing a variety of different sort of nonviolent civil disobedience initiatives forward to try and shift the zeitgeist. But what's your central theory of change? How do you think we make a better world? Yeah, God, that's that's the million dollar question. I think. Uh, I mean, I mean, I think that like the the work that um, so for example, like Lucas Walker, this uh, he was a this, this truck driver with Iowa Select Farms who got in touch with us uh, and and tipped us off, gave the the insider information we needed to to get the video of it. Um, he's he's a friend of mine uh, that I text from time to time. He he doesn't have that job anymore. He was very thoroughly done with that, but he's he's still he's not any kind of animal rights activist. And I think that that's kind of a microcosm of, of what I think we, we can make it about is to say, like, you know, tap into that, that common compassion, as you referenced there, and try to work with where, you know, use human psychology to, in our favor here to say, like, hey, you can you can help overturn the system. You're not a bad person because you were born into the system and you're driving truck kind of doing what you're told is like a wholesome, good industry here. And um, I mean, you know, when when you can, you know, I mean, in his in his case, for example, you know, specifically, 
I mean, when we were in the midst of doing and this was a, a six week process. There was so much that went into it. I won't get into it now, but, you know, trying to figure out where this is happening, trying to like send mess text messages to different people he's working with to like get them to give him information, but not seem suspicious. Like he was so engaged in that. I mean, he was like one of us in these like signal chats, like super like down with the process, like so motivated. And so if we can transcend the sense where people just inherently feel like they're being attacked because we're this industry that they're directly supporting three times a day, it's a big barrier to get over. Once you can get past that and give people like permission and they don't feel guilty and it's just like, yeah, you're good. You got this. We're on the same team. Like, let's do it. I mean, it's it's just right there. It just takes a little bit of a nudge and a little bit of like a positive association with animal rights folks and like people can 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 really come around in a, in a big way and um that's yeah that's 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 the project i think we're getting there but so, uh, so tapping into that sort of latent ethic that's there and then giving the people the freedom and the opportunity to make changes without to act accordingly yeah, yeah. To, um yeah it's um yeah, I mean all that, and I mean frankly, I think if, if if folks are able to go and read that that Harper story that that you that you brought up that, that just came out, I think like that kind of of storytelling, where it's kind of not just like vegans hitting you over the head with their facts and their rationale and their snobby whatever, um, and it's a very human story about about per, interpersonal conflict and I'm frankly some things about me that are conflicting you know like my, my my brother in there he's talking about how my brother's crying because it's like my, saying about me like oh he doesn't seem to care that much about spending time with us because he could go he's just going to go off to prison for his cause and it's uh you know and like, these are the sort of struggles that you know everybody has variations of these struggles in their own mind so humanizing it and uh you know creating the sense that we're all on the same team and um yeah, I don't know, all that good stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you. And and how do you think about this balance between, I guess, personal individual change as a consumer, particularly, and then all the different levers of institutional change? And, you know, you've, you've used a bunch of them already, right, in terms of leveraging the press and public stories, um, how that links into the law with your own cases, um, you know, politics. Do you have a sense of, you know, which of those levers are the most important to pull? and and how to pull them yeah well it was certainly kind of the uh the the kind of dxc approach which i think is is unique or it's, i guess it's less unique than it used to be in the animal rights movement was is the systemic approach and not um you know pretty much staying away from from the v word which is um a, a strategic choice i think i think the value in in something like veganism is largely it's it's normative value that if you if you for the people who do that now they are that that is like a core identity that's strong to them, but it's also that 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 normative value is also it's it's detriment because then it's like oh, okay well if I'm not a member of your club that follows this very you know what people think is very strict then then they they feel like well screw you like you think you're better than me because I don't follow your exact thing what about the avocados and the pesticides and the carbon footprint and the everything else uh, so I mean yeah, I think at the end of the day I you know come down a lot more on the side of of the systemic messaging i think it's for one thing it just hasn't been tried as much and you know quite frankly i mean the animal rights movement has not blown anybody's mind with how successful it's been i mean ever historically over over the decades so you know for no other reason than we've, we've tried the individual thing it's really not working <laughs> uh i think uh so yeah, leaning more in that that direction of of systemic change. Um, yeah, thank you. And it's um, of course DXE's approach. I think is is very distinctive. And I'm not a specialist in this space, so I'm not really qualified to sort of make any particular comments. But it strikes me that the the challenges to you could come from a couple of different spaces from the average person on the street. One is that particularly when you're doing the civil disobedience stuff you might hear the same sort of challenges that the vegan movement hears, which is it's disruptive. You know, you seem a bit sort of cultish and extreme. You're, you know, uh, getting in the way of my life. You're a bit insistent. You know, shouldn't you just be a bit more polite and just stand there with a placard out of the way where no one notices you? Right? So you might come under those challenges of, you know, you're doing too much, you're too, up, too in our faces, you're imposing on my freedom. You know, I want you to be quiet and stand to the side. And of course, 
you know, the most powerful social change movements are always the ones that no one notices, of course. Right. So anyway, mm-hmm. so that's so that's one challenge. You know, you're, you're pushing this groupishness thing. You're making people double down and respond to you. They get angry when the milk truck doesn't arrive and so on. Um, but then it's interesting as a thought experiment to imagine if you were going in, for example, and uh, instead of rescuing a pig from a ventilation shutdown situation, you were rescuing a pet from a sadistic abuser, people would be criticizing you for saying you're not doing too enough, right? Why, why are you just doing you know, nonviolent civil disobedience? You should be even more aggressive. So we can sort of put that to one side, but I guess that, you know, it's, I find it ironic that you could be challenged from those two perspectives. And, and with, with, with equal, like, un, <laughs> you know, with yeah. no hesitation, just, just with, with absolute certainty in their position on, on opposite ends of the spectrum. So, yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, kind of, kind of like, you know, pretty much like I think every, everything we've discussed here is that, I mean, quite frankly, like we're on the right side of the logic and rationale and we are, you know, the question is, is, you know, kind of like uh, mainstream uh, acceptance and, and integration. I think, I mean, in, in terms of how, how you can sort of make the, the how you respond or, or try to mitigate those kind of responses, uh, I think it's very important to follow through uh, a, a specific process, and and so you you know at a minimum you can be able to to put your perspective out there, like hey, we tried to do this through the established channels, even if we know the established channels from our own experience are got nothing to say about this, but like yeah, we tried to reach out to the company, we tried to you know uh, you know do, do all all the things that people would say are the established channels and. Yet it remains that, that, you know, this whatever cruel practice, often illegal practice continues to happen and it's not acceptable. And so, um, you know, yeah, just got to get that narrative out there, which is uh, pretty much my my whole life. <laughs> and, that, and, that, and I guess that's also the rationale for the civil deb- disobedience side, because you're saying, look, the, the channels just don't work because institutionally these things are so baked in. That it's not working. So when you've got you know ag gag laws that stop consumers seeing the reality of animal agriculture, or you're seeing other institutional constraints around these systems, you know, and there is still a clear ethical wrong being done. That's I think a strong a strong justification for civil disobedience, just as it is in intrahuman ethics. My understanding of the justification for you not going beyond that, right, and drawing some very clear lines around nonviolence, is that. It's partly an effectiveness argument because, again, I'm an amateur in this field, but my understanding of a lot of the social science research around the effectiveness of change is that violence can be effective, but it's most effective when it's used against you (laughs) rather than when you're the ones doing it. And it strikes me that in a way your recent case with the Iowa Select Farms situation was that sort of situation where the state and those corporations were ready to exact carceral violence on you for essentially saving the life of an innocent sentient being. Um, and that's part of the power that comes through the, the story yeah. that you're putting out. I think that, that that's exactly right. Uh, and, you know, you kind of, it's, it's the, the speciesist world that, that we live in that, uh, you know, one person, you know, I didn't even go to prison, but one person, you know, with the, the threat of potentially going to prison, which was still infinitely better than, than in a gestation crate, which hundreds of thousands of pigs in Iowa, my home state where I'm at right now, are, 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 are like at least at least 100,000. Um, are in, you know, that, that, that human suffering is, is going to impact people um, much more deeply. So um, yeah, kind of, uh, kind of just got to, got to lean into that. And I think that um, the, you know, it's what we've seen with social movements throughout history is, is this, this tradition of, of community organizing around, uh, around civil disobedience. And um, yeah, I mean, it just, it just kind of highlights everything that's wrong with the system, that it is the system of violence that is supported uh, by violence or threats of violence and intimidation. And rather than, uh, you know, rather than dialogue and rationality and reason and all the things that people say they stand for. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Thank you. Um, one final question. How do you think this imperative to address the non-human animal 
problem, particularly agriculture, but even more broadly. How does that relate to some of the intrahuman problems we're facing in society today? Do you think they're independent causes or complementary or they there's a trade-off somewhere we've got to take? Yeah, that's a tough one. It's, uh, I mean, obviously in terms of the direct harm, they're, they're very much intertwined. Hey, uh, you know, just list off the, the most uh, pressing human issues. Actually, it's, uh, it reminds me of, uh, we had a, an opportunity, a very brief opportunity that Zoe Rosenberg is a DXC organizer in California, got to talk to Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, who's probably going to be running for president, one of the most powerful politicians in in the world, or well, I don't know, at least in the U.S., um, briefly I got to ask him like, hey, you know, this issue of factory farming is, is huge in your state, yada, yada, what do you plan to do about that? And um, his response was like, oh, this is like, of course, everybody always says, oh, they care so much about this, you know, everybody says that. And then he's like, but, you know, I mean, the reality is right now we have all these other issues that I, you know, I really have to focus on right now. And he proceeds to give a laundry list of problems that are directly associated with without the slightest hint of irony. Oh, we have we have wildfires caused by climate change. We have, uh, you know, we have uh, or, yeah, and then he listed climate change itself separately. And uh, I forget exactly what Air pollution, was. water pollution, zoonotic diseases, <laughs> antimicrobial yeah, yeah. resistance <laughs> on and on. Yeah. yeah. So. But I mean, and then there is like this this other, I mean, frustrating element where so many people on the left who are the people who are the 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 human rights people, there is just this defense, like more defensive. I mean, a, a, like a thoughtful lefty person is going to cut you off, you know, is going to not entertain, is going to be more hostile to you than like a pretty like thoughtful, like rightish person. It's a, you have like the right wing people who are not particularly thoughtful that are just trolls, like whatever. You're going to have that, um, but the, there is, and I think it just it just t- touches on. I mean, because they because it conflicts with kind of everything they say they stand for, and they kind of realize it on a certain level, um, and they don't know what to do with that, and so it just manifests in defensiveness. Whereas, you know, not that uh, your average thoughtful, you know, right winger is is a know more morally upstanding or whatever but it's just it's their identity isn't built on like non-discrimination and equality and this it has it's these other kind of values and animal rights is just sort of like the side thing that they're like oh yeah they got a point you know um (laughs) so in theory it, it, it should just be i mean speciesism is wrong for all the same reasons racism and sexism is wrong like it should be a straight line it is a straight line rationally they all comes down as with kind of everything we've been talking about all comes down to, to narrative and messaging. That's the big challenge. Yeah. And again, you've got to adapt that narrative and messaging to the audience as well. Right. And that's one of the things I've, you know, I struggle to learn with my snarky random tweets, right. Which I completely fail yeah. to get the, mar- the messaging and the narrative, right. But, but there's a, there's messages around, you know, purity and tradition and so on that will ring well with certain more conservative audiences and ones that are more about, you know, equality and rights, compassion that might ring true for others. But I think whatever your worldview and your system, you know, there's ways of cutting through to people across the certainly economic political spectrum on these issues. Yeah. And I've had a, like another kind of side project I've, I've been, uh, you know, contemplating doing it's like, what if, if we could get like a who's who, like the biggest names you could have in like whatever kind of identity areas, uh, you know, and then you would, it would be like a blank case for animal rights. And so it's like a libertarian case for animal rights. You could be like, hey, libertarians live and let live. Yeah, let's live and let live. But like, let's figure out who is living and living, you know, uh, and, and go through like religious, a Jewish case, a Christian case, a Muslim case for animal rights. And like have and then just like release like a series of things from like the biggest name, whoever you can get like in those relative fields. Because um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Like that you can I mean, it just makes sense from every which angle that you, you can write it into every ideology, every identity out there if you think about it for no time at all, basically. Completely. And that's one of the fascinating things about this series of conversations, because I've, you know, I've talked to people from some of those different stances or who are certainly engaged with people from those different stances. So there's a philosopher called Josh Milburn who's done some interesting work about Robert Nozick, who's, you know, the libertarians tend to love, right? And he was actually quite pro-animal ethics. So there's a story you can tell there. Um, you know, while sentientism is naturalistic, I spoke to Lisa Kemmerer, who's done loads of work on taking religious worldviews and telling the story about how you should apply that to extending our compassion to all non-human animals as well. So I, I think you're right. And, it, you know, it's obvious how you do that from a progressive standpoint. 
Um, I think you can take many of those standpoints, as long as it isn't explicitly, you know, fascistic or anthropocentric or, you know, you know, deeply regressively reactionarily socially conservative. I think there's a story you can tell yeah. and that should cover most of the human, human species, hopefully. So, yeah. Well, that's, that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And um, inspirational. And I think, you know, whether people like the DXE approach or whether they have criticisms of it, none of them can question your level of commitment to this. Uh, you know, what I think everyone should agree is a clear win-win-win cause. Um, yeah. So it's been inspirational to, to talk to you and hear your philosophical journey too. Is there anything yeah. else you'd add into the conversation before I... <clears throat> Um, I, uh, I mean, I think it, it, uh, you know, it all, it's like, we gotta, we gotta make friends. We gotta like, if you have people feel good about us as individuals and people feel open and non-defensive, then, then that's where all the easy, obvious rock solid, you know, rationale is, is going to shine through. So, uh, I think that's, that's the path to, uh, the path to liberation. So I, would uh, encourage people to try to implement that in whatever way makes sense. Sounds good. Thank you. And I'd agree, right? It's about making friends, but still staying true to that ethical core that's driving everything that, that you and hopefully we are doing. Yeah. Well, it's yep. been inspirational. As I said, thank you so much. What's the best way of people following you, supporting you, uh, learning more about your work and the work of DXE? Yeah, they can check out uh, so the website, directactioneverywhere.com on, on all the social media platforms, Direct Action Everywhere. Um, I am uh, on Twitter, um, is it DXE Matt or DXE underscore Matt? I think so. I'll, I'll put the link in the yeah. notes anyway okay, so cool, people cool. can click in. Uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm big on Twitter um, and uh, yeah, Matt at directactioneverywhere.com. If people want to email me, um, definitely check those two a lot. Well, that's brilliant. Thank you so much for spending the time with me on Sentientist Conversations. And, yeah, uh, this enjoy the rest of your day. Please stay in touch. We appreciate it, Jamie. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?